You're listening to Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. Hi, Keisha. Hi, Augustine. We're doing this. It's so exciting. So um, after lots of trial and error and lots of technical difficulties and across, I think, 16 time zones, uh, here we are. And we sound like we're sitting next to each other. It's so exciting. We do. Yeah. I am so excited to be on this podcast with my good friend, Keisha Chiappinelli. Um, And Keisha and I have been connected over a couple of years now, like randomly, um, but she is like an incredible person. And I think the birth world needs to know about her more. Um, Keisha was a former JAG officer and and then became an internationally board certified lactation counselor, which is just so exciting. How many lawyer lactation consultants do you know? Um, She gave birth to her son with supportive midwives while she was in California um, and then was a mama for a while and then has returned to the practice of law in Arkansas. And her birth experience really shaped her law practice. Um, After learning about the regulatory environment of Arkansas midwives, she immersed herself in the administrative law process with a focus on the state agency regulation of midwives. And through her connections with other moms, she also found other ways to help moms who were injured from their doctors or the obstetric process during labor and delivery. And those medical malpractice cases have resulted now in extensive knowledge of bioethics, the law, and essentially human rights. And Keisha really, she's just like, she's bursting with life and passion and desire to change the system um, and fostering real change within the midwifery world. Um, And her, her real kind of, I think, key focus is putting an end to obstetric violence. So Keisha, welcome. And thank you for being my co-host. Thank you. You're welcome. Glad to be here. That was a great introduction, by the way. Thank you. Augustine is a nationally recognized midwife educator, very experienced business executive, and a midwife with over 20 years of experience attending births in hospitals, birth centers, homes in rural, urban, suburban environments all over the U.S. and abroad. I actually don't even know where you are right now, (laughs) but it's (laughs) a place exotic and wonderful. And I really admire what you're doing, your passion and desire to deconstruct the culture of fear and and misinformation that surrounds the maternity world is, is very important. And we need more of that. Augustine has led many midwives through education programs, consulting, product development, all that good stuff, the business development that we all need, whether we have um, a knack for that or not, it's such a crucial factor and will propel any midwife into a more successful practice. Augustine's been teaching midwives and students for more than a decade and we're doing these podcasts to unite midwives by sharing information, education, support, and story. And she's also been interviewed by many different magazines, uh, Mothering Parents, Parenting Magazine, just to name a few, has been on NBC, has a master's degree 
majored in maternal child health systems. And in her spare time, all that spare time <laughs> that she has, <laughs> likes to lead adventure retreats for women who are hesitant about the unknown. I might just be one of those women. <laughs> well, no. we should go retreat together. <laughs> well, I'm so but glad thank you that for we're all, doing all that you do. Oh, it's, you know, if you know, when you have this burning desire in your heart to see the change, you got to be the change. So thank you. Well, I am so happy to be doing this, our first episode together, um, first of many, hopefully, um, where we get to really explore, first of all, the challenges, and then um, hopefully the solutions. Um, Keisha and I have this desire to um, really map and chart out some, some pathways of solution for the women of the United States who are suffering so terribly in the maternal child health crisis that is um, happening right now. Uh, so I feel like it'd be a great place to start, which is kind of with the problems. Most everyone listening understands that healthcare costs in the United States continue to rise, but consistent long-term proven results on key maternal health outcomes like cesarean rate, preterm birth, low birth weight, infant mortality, and maternal mortality are not the norm. We don't see um, increase in better outcomes as a result of our increased cost. The cesarean rate in the United States um, experienced a nearly 60% increase from 1996 to 2009, and um, it's currently at 32%. Many have called this an epidemic because just about a third of all women in the U.S. give birth by major abdominal surgery. And birth by C-section, although life-saving in certain circumstances, when overused, possesses and poses significant risk to both the mother and baby. Surgical birth has been notably influencing um, future childbearing success. Um, and the, there's a lot of consensus around health advocacy organizations that this epidemic is really bad for American women and babies. Both the National Institutes for Health and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists agree that unnecessary cesareans have ill effects in terms of both health and costs, and cesareans are associated with an increased risk of hemorrhage, infection, blood clots, and death. It's definitely safer to have a normal birth. Um, cesareans also cost employers and taxpayers on average $10,000 more than a vaginal birth in the U.S. And compared with other industrialized countries, the United States ranks second to last in infant survival. In Scandinavian countries, about three per 100,000 women die during or around childbearing, which is thought to be the irreducible minimum by the World Health Organization. But here in the United States, the CDC released data in 2004 showing the rate at 13.1 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. And this data now has risen to the rate of 17.2 per 100,000 live births in 2015, and it is still rising. And though the nation's overall maternal mortality rate is shockingly high, the highest it's been in decades, some state rates are far worse. Georgia, Louisiana, and Indiana 
are all have rates over 40 deaths per 100,000 live births from 2011 to 2015. And that rate puts them on par with Malaysia and Turkmenistan. And this caused Amnesty International to claim that there's a human rights violation for women giving birth in the United States currently. And indeed, cesarean section has even become the most commonly performed operating procedure in the United States. This rate is causing organizations like the Gates Foundation to convene a think tank in New York just last December, calling, it was called um, Averting an Impending Cesarean Section Disaster in Low and Middle Income Countries. Uh, because, of course, um, the United States has exported its version of obstetrics around the globe. Uh, one of the attendees, um, Hannah Dahlin, a midwife in Australia, said that we have a mind-blowing impending disaster if we do not act. There is a potential of 1 to 2.6 million maternal deaths due to cesarean between 2020 and 2050. Uh, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists reported in 2017 that half of the U.S. counties lack a single uh, OB-GYN. Uh, these areas are home to more than 10 million women, and many of them may need an OB-GYN for primary care. Overall, rural women are less likely to receive any preventative health care or screenings, and fewer than half of rural women live within a 30-minute drive to a hospital with perinatal services. Over 10% have to drive 100 miles or more to access obstetrical care. Many communities at risk for adverse outcomes in the U.S. are the very communities that lack these obstetrical services because of the nationwide physician shortage. Health disparities are greater for poor and rural residents, and they are the historically most underserved. And additionally, the United States is anticipated to face a shortage of between 40,800 and 104,900 physicians by 2030. According to a report commissioned and published by the American Association of Medical Colleges in 2017, if barriers to utilization were removed and all Americans accessed healthcare at the same level as insured non-Hispanic white patients, the United States would need an additional 96,800 doctors by 2015 alone. So at the same time, access to maternity care um, has decreased in the United States, poor maternal outcomes have increased in the country where hospital-based maternity care is overwhelmingly common, particularly for marginalized populations. And between 2006 and 2015, the rate of severe maternal morbidity increased 45%. Over time, deaths among women of all races and ethnicities declined, but as in 2015 specifically, in-hospital maternal mortality was three times higher for black women than for white women. And women who are on Medicaid or uninsured also had higher rates of severe maternal morbidity um, and mortality on delivery. So this is a, a snapshot of all of the, the issues that exist, and, and maybe not even all, just a, a, a glimpse of some of them. And so um, I feel really inspired as a, a maternal child health investigator um, and researcher um, to really put a lens on these challenges and look closely at what's causing them and try to um, chart out some solutions. And so um, it was just natural that I would get together with Keisha and ask Keisha to join the conversation and contribute her vast knowledge and experience and also um, invite her solution-oriented brain to help, to help kind of tackle some of this. 
So Keisha, what, um, what made you say yes? Why did you want to join this conversation and, and search for these solutions? Well, overall, um, I've just seen through my practice and my personal life how these problems really impact women. It's, it's more than just reading the statistics, hearing it. I feel like we hear these numbers, we see these statistics, and yet there's no change. There's no action. So the more we talk about this, I believe we can stir people to action because we're going to actually have to change the many systems that are at play. And it has to be a discussion that continues. And, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing. We have to talk about it, but we, we have to combine that with action. And for me, that's, this is one outlet to do that. Yeah, we need to squeak a lot louder so that we get that oil, <laughs> right? So here's to squeaking. Yeah. Well, um, I know that like over the years, one of your um, real focuses has been defending uh, women who are um, victims of obstetric violence. Can you tell me a little bit about like how that started and, and how people found you and like what you did about that? What does that look like from a lawyer perspective? Sure. Well, I came back to Arkansas after having been away about 10 years and I've lived all over. Um, I recently found out I've had 17 addresses. I think that's actually gone up to 19 now (laughs) and I'm hoping I don't have another one. So, but I came back after having had my son after, after, getting certified as an international board certified lactation consultant. I was going to the Leche League meetings. I was reconnecting with old friends, mom of a young son. People knew I was an attorney. And because I was, you know, a woman, an attorney, had that background, I think I was just approachable. I mean, at the end of the day, most attorneys are you know, white males. I know there are more female attorneys now, but I I don't know many attorneys who are approachable, who you're going to want to go up to and talk about being, you know, assaulted by your obstetrician. uh, While you're that's such an important piece. Oh my God. Yeah. So Mm. it was, it just kind of happened very organically just as a result of who I am and it just so happens that I'm an attorney as well. So it was just this kind of perfect combination. And I was also pretty vocal on social media at that time. I think a lot of people found me that way. And it just kind of snowballed from there, gained momentum, and I ended up getting clients uh, who had very different issues, but we could, it's all under the umbrella of obstetric violence and what we're talking about here. So I went down the path of exploring administrative law, which is really state agencies who regulate things like midwifery. Okay. So I have a client currently who was this victim of, um, you know, a medical procedure that she didn't ask for, that she didn't need. There was no consent that's clearly 
violence. You know, if there's this unintentional touching, a cutting of your body, that's assault in any other context. The law seems to um, disagree and that's a that's another discussion but that's clearly obstetric violence but when you see how obstetrics controls government and lobbies and spends exorbitant amounts of money to control state agencies and control their competitors meaning midwives to the detriment of the population i mean you just talked about an alarming shortage of obstetricians in this country. You just talked about women driving a hundred miles away. And I've had clients like that who are looking at driving well over an hour to two hours to get to an obstetrician who will support them in a vaginal birth after cesarean. So these are very real issues. And when you really sift through it and you see what's behind it it's the obstetrical community controlling controlling state agencies um, and it ends up perpetuating that problem because if you stifle midwifery and you keep it from growing you are going to continue to have this shortage of providers and we want choice and you want options and you want good healthy competition amongst different providers of different backgrounds and disciplines because there's not a one-size-fits-all birth but that's exactly what the medical community believes and that's what's led us to these abysmal statistics so i think you can you can see this common thread of obstetric violence and and the control factor that's there yeah isn't it true power and control is so at the root of this and of course um yeah i mean we could go off on a conversation about patriarchy and misogyny and all kinds of things but we'll just keep it simple right now um <laughs> so one of the one of the really amazing recent headlines um that i'd love to share is um this clip from uh, Evelyn Yang. Um, Evelyn Yang is the wife of the recent presidential candidate, uh, Andrew Yang. And she um, decided to go public uh, based on her experience of meeting people on the campaign trail about her own, not only obstetric violence, but obstetric assault. Here's a clip from the exclusive CNN interview from January 17th, 2020. I was dressed and ready to go. And then at the last minute, he kind of made him like an excuse. He said something about, I think you're, you might need a C-section. And he proceeded to um, grab me over to him and undress me and examine me uh, internally, ungloved. So you've heard other women talk about this kind of assault. Oh, yeah. And I, I do know about the Yang um, story. It was actually, 
it's it's sad to say, but it was not a surprise to me. I didn't read this with any sort of shock. That's how wow. deep I am into this. Wow. It's just amazing to me that she she is a obviously well-educated, incredibly intelligent, you know, well-connected, affluent American. Um, and I think if 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 we really can understand how powerful her voice is right now, choo- choosing to be not silent about this because because sex is so um, uh, shame-filled in our culture. It's like this is part of the reason why um, you know the the Harvey Weinstein's and the um, you know the Jeffrey Epstein's and and the the the, the, the other um, you know quote unquote power and control men out there are able to have such power is because of the silence because the shame um, has sort of moved people into this silent place and you mix you know, the privacy of a doctor's visit with the shame that's associated with sex and then the like somehow subtle influences that you must have have done this to yourself or that, you, you know, you, you must be guilty of this. And basically they've silenced an entire generation. And then of course we have this Me Too movement, which has really changed lots of people's um, perception of their ability to speak about what's happened to them. Um, and so she, she decided to come out and speak about this, which is just really awesome. Um, and I think to me, I mean, aside from being like kind of emotionally tortured about this, anyone having to go through this, it's just like, it's the worst. Um, I also feel like if, if it can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. I mean, none of us are safe, which means all of us have to stand up. And so she has this quote, she was like, okay, so I thought my doctor was pervy. I have a pervy doctor, but I'm going to focus on having a healthy baby. Like, that kind of internal justification or um, sort of making it be okay in your brain so that you can just go back to focusing on what you need to is a part of um, like what's a part, what's been programmed into all of us. And like no one should ever have to have the thought that their doctor's pervy. Like that's the, the most inappropriate situation ever. And then she goes on to say that he like physically undressed her and did an exam without gloves on while threatening her with a C-section. I mean, I can't imagine, a, I can't imagine that kind of an assault. Yes, absolutely. There was a doctor in, actually in the same area of the state where I mentioned I had a client who was having to drive almost an hour with two young kids in tow just to see uh, an obstetrician during her pregnancy. But anyway, in that same town, that rural town of Arkansas, where obstetrical care is so, there is such a lack of it, there was a doctor doing something very similar. He was taking photos with his phone of women while they were on the table with their feet in the stirrups. And he was prosecuted criminally, actually, and did lose his license what is you know so it's very similar situation i believe what happened in that situation was a woman happened to see a reflection of him in the glass of a photo or something that was framed on the wall and that's how she knew he was taking photos because you're draped you're in this very subjective position right you can't 
You are not in control. They are in control. You cannot see what they're doing. And why do we, why do we need to do that? <laughs> why oh. think about the concept here, because we're talking about shame as it relates to genitalia, as it relates to sex. And I was just watching a show about this actually this morning. And so many women haven't even, I can't remember the statistics, but there's a lot of women out there who have never looked between their legs, right? We don't oh, even yeah. know. We can't identify our own genitalia. So now we're in the presence of a doctor and we're draped. What yeah. message does that send? Yeah. You're being very qualified. Like, it makes me think of that Monty Python skit. You remember like she's <laughs> having a baby is like, you're not qualified. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was done in like the eighties and it's still applicable. I mean, absolutely. Like, I don't crazy. believe, I don't believe anything's changed. It, in fact, it's probably just worse, oh, God. Um, but, but yeah, this was, this was disturbing. Um, I mean, it's disturbing to hear. And I actually think it's probably pretty common. Oh, it just breaks my heart. Oh, well, thank, I mean, I just, I thank goodness that people like you exist where there's like a somewhere someone could go and get help. Thank goodness people like Evelyn Yang are willing to speak out and the people who spoke out against Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and like all the, all of the big name thing. Now we're having this big, um, Boy Scouts of America has gone bankrupt because of right. the hundreds of complaints of sexual allegations, sexual abuse allegations over 50 years. Right? Mm. And then, but but let's go back for a second, because this is very different from the people you just named. And I'll tell yeah. you, and this is what I did not realize until I was practicing in this very specific area. Those people are not doctors, okay? Mm. Doctors are at a very clear advantage as far as, okay, and what I mean by that and what I've learned is that an assault, this is how I tell people, an assault on the exam, exam table at least in Arkansas, is an exception to the general rule that that assault is actionable, that you can go out and pursue a civil cause of action, as we would say, sue someone civilly for assaulting you. That doesn't happen here. So mm -hmm. in Arkansas, by statute, and this is, and this is going to be an upcoming research project, but I'm going to bet good money that this is very much the same everywhere else in the United States. But here, if the assault happened while the, the physician was rendering medical treatment, you have to pursue a medical negligence case, which a lot of people call a med mal or a medical malpractice case. That's all the same thing. I tend to say med mal, but you may hear me say medical negligence. That is that is a huge barrier to justice because a medical negligence case for the attorney who is working for the plaintiff, the person who's been wronged or harmed or assaulted, working for the Evelyn Yangs of the world, we can't take that kind of case because what are the damages? And now you're talking about trying to pursue the physician and insurance. Yeah, you know, it's it's a huge barrier unless they're it's just too protected, right? That's the idea. There's too many barriers and that protects the abuser. 
they're, they're very, very protected. Absolutely. And I don't know why if, if doctors are these saints that we paint them as, and they are pillars of the community and people to look up to and people to trust, why do we give them any extra protection? It seems to me it should be the other way around. They should be held to a higher standard. Mm, but amen. to have to bring the assault as a as something other than a criminal or civil matter, well, in a medical negligence case is civil, but it's a very different kind of case. And we work those all on the idea that at the end, there's going to be a huge damages award that will then reimburse us for all the money that we're going to have to spend out of our own pocket to pursue it. Because, of, because because the theory is that the, the person coming to you doesn't have the resources to support that. Campaign. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I right mean, there. I'm, you know, I'm working a medical negligence case now. The number of hours, if you just add it up times a reasonable, you know, hourly rate of an attorney is astronomical. Nobody can yeah. pay that. We're essentially yeah. working for free for a very long time, fronting all the costs, just like, you know, you don't get paid until we get paid kind of thing. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of times we don't get paid, <laughs> you know, yeah. if these yeah. cases go to trial, um, nine times out of 10, it, it's not good. Um, but then again, you have to ask yourself, you know, what are the damages in this type of case? It's, it's to me that the damages are, very, I mean, they're through the roof, right? I value um, my body and I don't want to be assaulted and I don't want to feel like, you know, I don't want to be raped essentially, yeah. but someone's going to put a price tag on that. You know, it's very, it's very complicated subject. So I just want to recap because I think you said something that the general public doesn't know. Um, so like, let's say you're walking down the street and somebody like pulls a knife and cuts your body and runs away but is caught. All you have to do is find any lawyer anywhere and say, I was assaulted, file a police report, and then you can pursue civil. Uh, well, case. I think what would happen, and, and I don't do a lot of criminal, I did criminal in the Air Force, which is very different, but generally it's, and this might be a, a good topic to discuss, the state, you know, your, your prosecutor, your city attorney, would pursue that case for you, right? For you, but it's not because really it's a, for you. It's not really for you. It's actually a crime against the state. That's why uh, so if you were the, the victim. Yeah, right. Okay, so keep going. I want to hear that. So, yeah, if you were the victim in that situation and charges were brought against the person who assaulted you, you don't get to tell the, the prosecuting attorney that, uh, yeah, that's a good sentence. That's a good plea. That's a good deal you can make with them. Or I want to do this at trial. Okay, we're going to trial. I want to call this person. You don't get to call the shots because, and they'll probably listen to you and, you know, look for your input. But the state is the victim, literally. Wow. wow. And I don't agree with that either. Wow. So would you then have some sort of civil recourse? I hate to bring up O.J. Simpson, but that's the big thing everybody can think of, right? There was the criminal trial that we all watched on TV. And then afterwards, you had the victim's families pursuing a civil case, right? There was footage of that, but it's, it's less, right. you know, publicized. People didn't watch it quite as much. And then they got a judgment against him for the damages 
So right. that's kind of the breakdown, right? You've got the criminal aspect, which is really the state's the victim. And then you have civil. I mean, so then apply that, overlay that over an obstetrical situation. So instead of walking down the street, you walk into your doctor's office or you walk into the hospital and your doctor meets you. And then without your consent or even against your consent, you are, your body is injured or you're cut in some way that's not a medical piece. What is your recourse? What, what do you do? Right. So then in general, 99% of the time, okay, go back to the OJ example. Yeah. You're not going to have the criminal piece of it unless it's just extremely egregious, gets a lot of attention and notoriety. Dr. Nasser, the Olympic gymnast doctor right. comes to mind. Okay. Right. And then the civil part of it in Arkansas says you have to, that civil part, you have to bring as a medical negligence case. So in a medical negligence case, a few things that happen, for example, a couple years back, the legislature here in their infinite wisdom uh, created a statute that said when you filed your complaint for medical negligence, you had to at the same time file a report from a medical expert basically saying that your case had merit. That's a oh barrier God. to bringing a complaint. We already, under the rules that, that guide bringing complaints and filing lawsuits, I am swearing that what's in it is true. We are called a fact pleading state, which means I can only file a complaint based on facts that I know. If I have a hunch that you did something else, you know, maybe committed fraud or something, you know, I can't put that in there unless I have a fact to back it up. So there's no need to make a victim who, if they can get someone to take this medical negligence case, let's say it's Evelyn Yang, now then has to go out and pay a couple grand to a medical expert to draft a little piece of paper that says your case. I believe you, essentially. Turn I that in. You, right. right. That yeah. is a barrier. That is a barrier. And that puts the doctor in a better position than you. There is no even playing field. Now, through well, case that's not, law. That's like guilt. That's like someone, not even guilty before. Like, that's not even innocent before proving Like, that's already believing that the victim is wrong. Right. And we actually don't, because I don't want someone to hear this and think that that's the current state of things here. There's actually case law that says that requirement is without merit and we don't have to follow that anymore but it took someone challenging that through a lawsuit that had to be appealed and work its way up to the supreme court of arkansas to get that mm. okay so God. that's so what scary. i say when i talk about barriers to justice that is an example it's 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 really astounding the the like you said, not a level playing field. Like it's actually so imbalanced. It's like you're on different floors, different. Oh yes. Know. Yeah. It's and crazy. then let's take it a step farther. Let's just say Evelyn Yang was able to get an attorney to take this case. It's a medical negligence case. We get past all this, you know, we need a report from a doctor and we've got our lawsuit now. And this just happened to me this week. You depose the doctor, right? And a deposition, we've all seen them. There's great YouTube dep uh, depositions of celebrities. I love to watch them. But deposition <laughs> is testimony, right? You're just not yeah. in court, but you're sworn in. It's testimony. 
can be used later. You can be questioned again. So we go in and we ask the doctor questions. Well, how do I say it? I want to I give you the Reader's Digest version. Essentially, a doctor cannot be made. You can't force them to give expert testimony. And what that looks like is this. If you ask the doctor, well, what's the best way to do this procedure? And it could be a procedure that is pertinent, obviously, and relevant to the case. It, you know, it involves the case. They don't have to answer you because they can't be made to be an expert by statute. So all they want to testify to is what's in the documents, the medical record, their, their delivery notes, say, if we're talking about a birth. Because, you know, they never remember an individual birth. They probably right. never remember an individual's exam. They do so many of them. So right. they can't recall anything. So now they are committed to what's ever in their notes, which is, lo and behold, very sparse. Not a lot of information right. in those notes, probably by design. Right. And then when you ask them anything that could be speculative, they'll say, well, you're asking for speculation. I, I can't speculate. Well, you're asking me for an expert opinion. I can't give an, I'm not an expert. So we have by statute, the Arkansas Medical Practices Act actually says that a doctor cannot be made to testify as an expert cannot be compelled to even give an opinion, doesn't have to have an opinion. And so you now have a deposition or that's useless because they won't talk about anything that's on the paper. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. I mean, no, it makes no sense, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's just, it, again, it's behind so many doors and walls and firewalls and protections it's like, I bet this is so much more prevalent than we even know, because what is a woman's recourse? So let's say that she had a pervy doctor and he did more than she thought was appropriate. What does she do? Where does she go? There's no, there's no channel for, for any kind of accountability. Yeah, you could, you know, you could do a medical board complaint you know, they're not very successful. There's some statistics out there that some colleagues of mine are working on. It's not hopeful, but I would recommend doing a medical board complaint through an attorney if you can. And if not consulting with someone at the very least, mm -hmm. that's one avenue. It probably would just result in some sort of sanctions, but um, that's, you know, that's one one so way you could, you could complain to you could ask for an office manager in the actual office and you could complain yeah. to them you could complain to um the medical board of the state right you could complain to the ad chief administrator of the hospital if it happened on hospital grounds and i i have heard of some people being successful with that in that some of their costs were um compensated yeah i i don't know but really there's no clear pathway so like this is one of those solutions like i want to i want to help to co-create a solution to this because this is a crisis it is it is it it's a crisis for sure and it's I a think human rights violation 
Absolutely. It's assault. I mean, we have to have some recourse, some path. And, you know, even with outside of the context of, you know, OBGYNs and labor and delivery, which is, I think, what we tend to migrate to, even dentists or other types of providers, the vast majority of, of people being assaulted, I would assume, are women. And I feel yeah. like a law like the one I described, where now you can't question the perpetrator about basically anything, it, it very much is negatively impacting more women than I think anyone else. You know what I mean? They're just disproportionately affected for sure. There's a really fantastic um, book out right now uh, by the esteemed Hannah Dolan, who is a professor of midwifery at Western Sydney University in Australia. And her book is called Birthing Outside the System, The Canary in the Coal Mine. And it specifically looks at how the the large and growing numbers of women leaving the system, quote unquote, you know, whether it's midwife, doctor, you're still getting obstetrical care when you're in the system almost all the time. I mean, there's some very exceptional doctors and there's some very exceptional CNMs, but generally the system is designed for a certain type of care and that type of care is called obstetric care. And, um, there are a lot of people leaving the system. They are choosing home births. They're choosing birth center births. They are birthing by themselves unassisted. And this, she says, is, is the sign. It's like the canary in the coal mine to use that ancient reference of like, it's time to get out. It's time to do something different. Like we're all in danger. And she writes this really compelling book describing this mass exodus from mainstream obstetric care as the the bellwether that actually what is happening in that care is is not is not doing what it's supposed to do um it's no longer helpful it's actually hurtful you know um so i highly recommend that book first of all and second of all like what is the solution keisha like like let's say that some one of our audience members is is one of these people who left a doctor's office or left their labor and delivery experience thinking that's not right like that I was assaulted like this shouldn't have happened to me something's wrong what do they do what should they do well good question a lot of things come to mind if you know I think more women do need to absolutely start talking to, you know, their city attorney or prosecutor's office. It makes it very public though. I mean, you've just been assaulted and it's, it's got to be. And you're maybe postpartum and recovering from, you know. Yeah. But I mean, if we start talking about it, like it's any other assault or a rape and it's, it's violent and it's invasive and it's non-consensual and we frame it that way, you know, maybe through that criminal avenue of redress, there could be some change. Eliminating any barriers in the legal system that, you know, prop one person up and subjugate another, you know, based on a title, uh, they ha- those types of laws have to go. You know, we yeah. need to be able to question a medical provider about the standard of care. I can't 
under the scenario, the way the law is currently, what I described to you about testimony and depositions, I can't ask a doctor what the standard of care is. Apparently that requires an expert at the rate of $500 an hour. So how can you ever, how can you legitimately practice and, and not be able to articulate what the standard of care is in your profession? If, if your question is a midwife, you certainly have to answer. If I'm yeah. questioned as an attorney, you know, because I've wronged a client or committed some sort of malpractice, I need to be able to articulate to people in a lawsuit that, you know, I know what the standards are. I know what I was supposed to be doing at least. Whether I didn't do it is another question. And, and things happen, bad outcomes happen in the absence of negligence. But to at least be able to articulate a standard, we should hold everyone to that. Indeed. Mm. You know, medical board complaints, I would like to see, you know, I believe that they are public. I, I think it would be nice if the state was concerned about medical board complaints, how many are happening, maybe flagging them when they involve some sort of allegation by women uh, against obstetricians, perhaps, or anything that involves labor and delivery. And making that more accessible to the public. You know, there really needs to be a way to track what's happening, even if the complaint doesn't, you know, go in our favor. Just the fact that it's been brought, I think, is important to know. Just a little bit more transparency. Yeah. Gosh, isn't that the case? Oh, transparency and accountability, I think that those two would be massively influential change. Well, so um, I feel like, uh, to me, prevention might be one of the best cures in this scenario. Um, And so, you know, if you were to ask me, what do you think the solution is, (laughs) which I will put myself right in that center, Um, uh, you know, if, if you are thinking of having a baby or you're currently pregnant and investigating, you know, how, what is the best path for me? Um, you know, I, I think this is where, um, really we can make the biggest difference is helping folks who are currently just at the very beginning of this pathway, um, make a choice that opts them out of the potential danger of the system. So, um, if you are healthy and you're not on a medication and you haven't been diagnosed with a disease, um, you are almost every time low risk. And if you're low risk, um, then it would be very appropriate for you to see the expert in low risk, which is your community midwife. Um, And um, there are uh, many different types of midwives in the United States, and there's different types of licensing and certifications around the country, and that's a topic for another podcast because it's also confusing. But um, interviewing options in your community and um, choosing a provider that offers several, um, I think, real differences in 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 care that creates basically the environment where obstetric violence is not possible because you aren't a number and the provider isn't 
um, firewalled and separated behind you. So one of those real hallmarks in the change of the care is what we call continuity of care. So you see the same person or the same two people um, throughout your whole care. And then um, when you are in labor and the most vulnerable and needing the most support, you get to call that person or that, that group of people. Um, hopefully it's not too many because then it stops being continuity. It starts being rotational care, but, but you get to actually talk to that provider and that's who meets you at the hospital or that's who meets you at the birth center or that's who meets you at your home is, is this person that you already know and you've already developed a relationship with. Um, that, that is one major hallmark of care. Um, and I, I think if we had more continuity of care, continuity of care was the standard in the U.S. Um, that alone kind of builds in this natural accountability because, you know, someone that's literally a number or even worse, like a draped vagina isn't even a part of a person. There's a lot more potential for abuse in that scenario than somebody that you have to actually build a relationship with and remember their name and remember their partner's name and remember their their history and their worries and their hopes and their dreams and their fears and like humanize the process. And I think continuity of care is one of the most simple and effective ways to do that. I would agree. And I want to ask you a question because yeah. that is so huge for me. And I wonder when, and maybe you know the answer, when did the shift occur in the United States where doctors stopped delivering their own babies and you got the on-call? Because what I'm seeing is that like my mother's generation, they don't even realize that this is how it's, it works anymore. Yeah. They yeah. Think it was about the, it was about the fifties to the seventies. It depends on what part of the country, but um, we had this super specialization that happened around the seventies where we used to have the majority of doctors were actually family practice doctors and you went to them for everything. Um, your cut, your injury, your, your cold, your baby's delivery, your grandpa's, like your family practice doctor was historically in medicine who's been the go-to. And then uh, specialization happened. <clears throat> and actually, I think it started in John Hopkins University um, and sort of grew and grew until we have um, not only specialties, but now subspecialties um, in medicine that, um, that really sort of piece apart, not only the person's experience, but even the body parts, um, so that only a specialist can look at this part of your body and only another specialist can look at that part of your body, which just really destroys holistic focus, a holistic care. Like it no longer exists. And <clears throat> I think um, like one of the best examples of that, that is really failing families is actually the split between obstetrics and pediatrics. Historically, and which is still true for community-based midwives, is that the midwife takes care of the mom and the baby. But in obstetrics, mainstream obstetrical or medical world, um, there's a care provider for the mom and there's a care provider for the baby. And they're so separate that there's even separate departments and separate rooms to take care of these babies. Now, because of public outcry, there's been a push um, to get babies to room in, quote unquote, and be with their moms, which is like, duh. <laughs> but but still the subs, the specialties exist. And so like you can ask your obstetrician, like, what do you think about this? They're like, I don't know. You have to ask your pediatrician. You can go to your pediatrician. Like, what do you think? I don't know. You have to ask your obstetrician. Like they're so separate. They won't answer each other's questions. And so this has become a real crisis. I know it's really funny. This has become a real crisis around breastfeeding because like the breasts are attached to the mom. 
the baby's mouth is attached to the baby. Whose job is it to help breastfeeding? Both both specialties will be like, uh, ask the other one. It's and like so, the blind leading the blind. I know. It's hilarious. <laughs> so luckily, some some really brilliant nurses um, and other passionate people created a whole new specialty called the International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, of which you are um, certified to try to meet this need, which is that after, right after a baby's born, the obstetrician is saying, oh, that's not my specialty. And the pediatrician is saying, oh, your boobs aren't my job. And so luckily there's an IBCLC profession now, which is staffed in most hospitals and they do home visits now and they're, you know, this sort of thing to, to help bridge this gap. But, but it's still a third provider who has a, another specialty and, and I think that super specialization started in the 70s and has just grown and grown and grown. There's a pushback now in some other countries, like Canada has done this pushback now and is trying to grow the family practice medicine specialty, um, specifically family practice docs who do obstetrics with this idea that actually for normal, healthy, low-risk people is much safer for them to have continuity of care and to be delivered and taken care of, um, supported by providers who don't have a high-tech, high-medicine, high-intervention specialist brain. Very interesting. I know. And of course, there's, there's lots more we could explore. <laughs> so, so let's kind of uh, pull our, our solutions together for this podcast, um, this episode. Um, number one, uh, to avoid obstetric violence in the first place, if you're healthy, normal, low risk, find someone who offers continuity of care regardless of the location, seeing the same person over and over uh, changes the relationship. Um, and then I would add, find someone who sees you for more than five minutes because <laughs> relationships don't get developed in five minutes. So, so um, yeah, don't be afraid to interview. Uh, if they won't sit down and interview with you, that's a red flag. I think that person is obviously not qualified to be your provider if they're not willing to have a face-to-face -face fully clothed meeting. Like if they requ require your first meeting to be you undressed and sitting on a paper sheet and them fully clothed like that kind of imbalance exists in the first meeting that's not going to be a good relationship throughout you like like i mean I, I don't know but yeah that's i said enough <laughs> you know, that's a problem that's a problem sounds like so, yeah if you want <laughs> this is good advice for many areas of life <laughs> i know right like if you have to be like less than and, and naked like that person might not be your best friend so um so that would be number one um and then if, if you think obstetric violence already happened to you, um, uh, Keisha is giving the recommendation to, we say it again, talk to your... Look at it as any other violent assault and go to law enforcement, go to the prosecutor, go to the city attorney, go to anyone you can go to and report it just like any other assault because it should not be an exception thank you brilliant